When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Song Facts Podcast. I am your host, Corey O'Flanagan. Thank you so much for being here. Take a quick minute, leave us a nice five-star review wherever you're listening, and go tell a friend helps us to grow the show and we certainly do appreciate it as always this show is proudly a part of the pantheon podcast network on the show today i have the great pleasure of chatting with colin blundstone of the zombies if you're not aware of them by name i am sure you are aware of them by tune as they have written some of the most familiar songs of the mid-60s including time of the season and she's not there which we get a fascinating story on during this episode. Colin and the band have a new album coming out on March 31st called Different Game that we discuss as well. This is one of those conversations that I really wish could have gone on and on as Colin is full of energy and truly able to draw on memories from events that took place almost 60 years ago. He even called me after the interview to tell me that we had been using the word nourish when what we were meaning to say is the word nurture. So, anytime you hear us say nourish, replace it with nurture, and you won't skip a beat. Please, sit back and enjoy Colin Blundstone. Anytime, anytime, to show show you what you need to live. Tell it to me slowly. Colin Blundstone, I want to say thank you so much for coming on to the Song Facts podcast. It's a true pleasure of mine. I, I obviously was introduced to your music by my parents, who are your generation. And um, it's, it's just incredible to be talking to you right now. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me on the show. I'm you know, really looking forward to it. Well, you should be because you've got a great set of new tunes out. Let's get right into the new album, Different Game, which is coming out March 31st. Um, reading through some of the press info that you all sent to me in the liner notes, I'm seeing multiple accounts of how this, the recording of this album seems similar to you all to some of the band's first albums in the you know 60s and early 70s. And I'm just kind of wondering if you could elaborate on those similarities and, and if that was an, uh, purposeful. It was. I mean, one thing I should say that this album was obviously interrupted by the pandemic. There were two songs, time. This, there were two songs that were recorded so long ago. I, I can't remember, you know, but whenever the lockdown came, they were recorded before that. Um, but we'd also, we'd learned from our last album, I think it was 2015 and it was called Still Got That Hunger. And almost by accident, we recorded all of that album with us all in the studio playing live together. It's, it's a, in some respects, it's almost like a live album, but it's in a studio environment. And we really enjoyed it because there's an energy in the studio when you're all there playing live that isn't there if you record 
your parts separately, which is how a lot of recordings done now. And we really enjoyed that experience in 2015, and we were determined to do it this time around. Uh, but of course, with the pandemic, it was very hard to get everyone together. In this country, there was, I think there were two separate lockdowns where you were, you were not really allowed to leave your house. You were encouraged not to leave your house. Yeah. And our bass player, Soren Koch, uh, actually lives in Denmark. So that made it even more difficult. So what could have been, you know, a couple of months in the studio actually turned into a bit of a marathon. I think probably getting on for three years now because we we stuck true to the the ideal that we would all be in the studio together recording at the same time. So uh, mm -hmm. it's been a little bit of a drawn out affair, but it wasn't, it was out of our hands. Do you think that that method of recording has like can you hear an, an effect of that of being of having these songs be interrupted or was there was it a natural progression and this would have been the end result either way oh i think this is i i i think it's just a natural progression i don't think there was a problem um in in that sort of two-year gap it's the same players uh playing with the same yeah. spirit and and uh, no i i don't think you can you can tell any difference Another question is, can you tell a difference between an album that's recorded with all the players in the room playing live at the same time and an album that's recorded where people will record their parts separately? And I'd mm -hmm. like to think you can tell a difference, but, um, you know, maybe it's just in our minds. I don't know. It's certainly more enjoyable to perform in the studio with all the other guys there because I will sing a song differently if a bass player and drums are in, in the, the room with me and yeah. they've all told me that they will perform differently if they can hear the lead vocal and the other instruments as well. Yeah. And you know, it might not be something that as a listener you hear so much, but maybe there's a feeling that you get and like, you don't even know what it is. Maybe it's subconscious. You don't even realize it, but maybe just listening back to an album, you just, it, if it's played live like that, it can evoke this feeling. I think we read a lot about, bands who are on tour you know playing 200 shows in the middle of it they're just so connected and they just say let's take a couple days and pop into a studio and record this new song that we've got because we're just so tight as a band right now and i think that that kind of thing happens so a band knows that they have that energy and i'm guessing that a listener can pick up on it in some way shape or form well i certainly would like to think so but i what i can say is that it's definitely different for the actual recording artists to record like that. And I find it a lot more enjoyable. I bet. Um, yeah. You know, I, I wish we, I don't think we've ever done that. Maybe in the sixties we did to uh, be touring, be really tight and then get into the studio for a couple of days and then go back on tour again. I think we did that in the sixties. Yeah. Uh, we haven't done it more recently. And I, I would love to do that because you, when you finish a tour, you always think, yeah, <laughs> this is great you know where we just float through these performances that the energy levels are incredible everybody's feeling really confident and that would be a great time to start recording but usually when we're so exhausted that that's when we that's when we sort of go and visit the asylum to try and get our our brains sorted out at yeah. the end of a tour but the, I, um 
I wanted to jump in. I wanted to jump into this second single that you guys just released because I have kind of th- this this podcast all about getting kind of the stories behind the songs, and okay. I'm I was listening to this. My I, my wife and I this we're recording this on the fifteenth of February on Valentine's Day is when the song was released. So yesterday, and my wife and I went to a movie last night to um just kind of have have ourselves a little date night. And on the way out, I was like, hey, I'm doing this interview tomorrow. Let's listen to this song on the way home. And it just happened to be we went into the theater during really nice, just like a pleasant evening, and we came out to like a blizzard. And it was just storming all night. Like we have like four or five inches of snow here. And um, so I'm listening to this song at the beginnings of this as we're driving home, and I've just got snow coming through the windshield. And, and it's just like this surreal moment with this music. And I guess between the beautiful finger picking um, throughout, and then the harmonies that you guys kind of wrapped the song up with, the song is called "Love You While I Can." Someday, someway, I'm gonna look for your hand. I will love you while I can. This time, it's real. I feel something. How did this tune come together? It's just a beautiful song. Well, it, I mean, it does have a, a quite an interesting story in that we're managed by a guy and a and a, and a young lady. Uh, um, the Rocks management are, are Chris and Cindy, and they got married about right at the beginning when we were beginning this um, album. So before the pandemic, and Rod thought I'd really like to write a song for the wedding for oh. And so it was written for them. Unfortunately, they, I found most of these songs quite easy to, to get into. The one song that I found really challenging, and it sounds so simple, I, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I really, just one song, I struggled on this, Love You While I Can. And so I didn't feel confident enough to sing it at their wedding, which was the plan. Oh saying this will be our year because we felt we felt quite secure about that as, as an old classic <laughs> track from Odyssey and Oracle. So they still got a performance, but they, they got a different song. So it was very interesting for me. This song was originally written on piano oh. and Tom, the our guitarist, took the exact notes that Rob was playing and played them on guitar. And it sounded so effective that it was the whole idea of the song was transferred to wow. acoustic guitar. And now you hear it like that, you can't imagine it any other way. No. But when I first heard it, I heard it on piano. When Rod writes a song, and he is very much the dominant songwriter in, in The Zombies, he lives quite near to me. And when he writes a song, he will always call me, and then we'll go and rehearse that song, just the two of us, before we move on to the band. And we're, and we're very, we go into it in quite some depth especially the phrasing of the song of course the melody we don't we're not improvising you know um, when when i perform the song it's absolutely what he wrote the, the melody will be exactly what he wrote not close exactly and the phrasing will be exactly the same and we're forever talking about is this note pushed or is this should this note be on the beat and it's it's one of the things that i dread when we're recording if rod says no look 
can you get that phrase on the beat? And I'm thinking, <laughs> I thought I'd just sing it on the beat. Now this is a problem. And this, these were the kind of things that were happening when we were first trying to go through this single, Love You While I Can. I, I just struggled with it. But now I hear it. Of course, it's it's absolutely worthwhile, and hopefully, it sounds effortless. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I hope. yeah, listening to it, you don't you don't hear anything like that. Like it just, I do think when you have a when you have like this descending, like finger picking style of music. In my opinion, someone who's played some music but listened to a lot of music, it's got to be hard to find a melody to weave into that because it is already kind of a busy musical piece, and. Um, I, I guess I credit you guys for being so detail oriented. Is that something that has been like you guys have a long career now? Is that something that's always been where it's you guys sit down and, and really dig into this and be like, I want this note to sound exactly like this at this exact time, either on the beat, ahead of the beat, just behind the beat. Is that something that kind of details? Is that your guys's kind of secret to success here? Well, uh, I don't want to be too presumptuous and say secret to success, but <laughs> it's the way we do things, yeah, especially on Rod songs. Um, yeah, he usually has a very full picture of how he wants the song to mm-hmm. sound. For instance, um, he certainly will know what the chords are and what the melody is, and he'll probably have a pretty good idea what he wants the bass to play, and, and sometimes the drums as well. It's the, Those parts are written as part of the song. And um, he's very patient and very supportive uh, when you're coming to terms with a song. But I always say to him, I want this to be how you want it to be. I want it to be exactly um, how, how you hear it. Yeah. And, and that's what we try and get. No, I think you guys do it really well, and you've been doing it for a long time. Um, in 2019, you guys were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah. Congratulations. Um, I'd like to just get you to talk a little bit about what that meant to you. And if you could take us into, you know, that moment when you got that phone call originally from the from the Rock Hall. OK, well, I mean, to start with, I think we were nominated four times before we were inducted. And I've got to be honest, I'd started to think that maybe it would never happen. Um, so I wasn't following the voting practice as close as I might have been. That's an interesting thing to me of like getting these nominations and just not knowing. So it's like managing hope and expectation. And that's got to be a thing that's difficult because you don't want to set yourself up for um, heartbreak, you know? I know. And and so because we've been nominated and not inducted so many times before, I I probably wasn't paying as much attention as I was when we were first nominated. And there's a a trick to this also that um, there's the fan vote, which Mm. is public. Everyone knows that. And we we were incredibly well supported. We had over 300,000 votes. It's just mind boggling. Um, But then the the vote by the members of the uh, of the rock hall is private. So you don't know. Um, how that no one knows how that vote's going so it's a surprise for everyone and then yeah we got the magic phone call and uh, you know I was very happy and I I think I had to sit down for a little while and uh, just (laughs) absorb it all because this sort of thing where you get any sort of acknowledgement from your peer group is it's so it's exciting it's fulfilling it's so meaningful it's what artists long for 
is to get acknowledgement from from their peers and that's what this is to be inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame the the main vote is from fellow inductees and yeah it was it was a wonderful experience and then of course you you go to the induction ceremony in our case it was at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn mm. in front of 17,000 people. Oh, my God. And the front, you know, few rows, I don't know, 20 or 30 rows, are the great and the good of the music industry. So you've got this huge audience. And then right in the front few rows, you've got these icons of the music industry. And um, it, it was wonderful. It was great. And actually, we played with the original lineup. So, so and sadly, our lead guitarist passed away some time ago, so he wasn't with us, obviously. But um, our original bass player, Chris White, and our original drummer, Hugh Grundy, played with us. And um, that was fantastic, fantastic for us and fantastic for them because they don't play regularly anymore. Um, and I just thought they did incredibly well as we have gone up and we've uh, we've done some tours recently of, of playing odyssey and oracle in its entirety and and they've played on on those tours but other than those tours they haven't played since 1967. oh wow so to get up on in front of an audience like that i thought they did incredibly well when we first decided to to play odyssey and oracle in its entirety it was 2008 and we were celebrating the 40th anniversary of odyssey and oracle um, and it was at the Shepherd's Bush Empire. And Rod and I were on tour at the time when we were putting this, the idea of the show together. And we said, you know, we should get together with Chris White and Hugh Grundy, the other original members. We, we, you know, we have to see if they can play. They haven't played since, this is 2008. They haven't <laughs> played since 1967. <laughs> so we thought, yeah, I mean, without being too obvious, you know, we're just saying we're getting together for a playthrough. But we were watching very closely and listening very closely. Anyway, we got together and <laughs> it was a very humiliating experience because Hugh and Chris, who hadn't played since 1967, had obviously rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed. They were absolutely note perfect. And Rod and I, who hadn't rehearsed at all because we were thought we're in the middle of a tour, we're fine, we're not worried about us. We were all over the place. Oh, amazing! <laughs> it was a little bit embarrassing, but it was it was it was a very good thing for us to realise that just because we're currently touring doesn't mean that we know Odyssey and Oracle as well as we need to know it. So we had to do a bit of homework. But I mean, it really made me laugh that the two guys we were checking on, note perfect, us horrendous. We were all over the place. That's amazing. So the, the thing is that they did know uh, Odyssey and Oracle pretty well. And um, of course, we played Telano as well. That's not on Odyssey and Oracle. Um, we played three or four songs from the album and they were immaculate. They just played fantastically. God, that's so great. I mean, it's, it's, it had to be an interesting phone call for them to get the invite and then be like, Ooh, I gotta, I gotta start woodshedding. I gotta really start practicing here because maybe they just kept themselves sharp for forty years. Who knows? Could be. <laughs> I have a feeling that they got into some serious rehearsals. I don't know if they played together because actually, our original drummer lives off the coast of Spain, so he doesn't live in this country anymore. Mm. But they'd certainly put some hours in. I think, in a way, I think that's cheating 
they put some out of it and we hadn't you know i just i thought it was hysterical but uh, there we are we live and learn yeah absolutely stay tuned for more song facts podcast right after this Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Um, okay, I need to take us. I need to ask you one question to like take us back to that, that those early days in the uh, early mid '60s. And I think the song "She's Not There" just has such an amazing story from what I've been able to gather, um, doing my research on it. And it sounds like you all won a talent contest and then were awarded a recording session. So Rod. Argent, he wrote this one specifically for that session. Like the song didn't exist until then. I'm just wondering if you can elaborate on that. What do you remember about, I guess at this time in 1963-64 that absolutely just must have been a whirlwind experience for you guys? Oh, how many people cried But it's too late to say you're sorry How would I know? Why should I care? Don't bother trying to find her She's not there Absolutely, it was, and, and from the time from when you recorded a song to when it was released was was a very short period of time in yeah. those days. There was a turnover of singles, so it wasn't '63. It was the spring of '64 that we recorded it, and it was released on July the 24th in this country. Oh, July yeah. the 24th, 1964. So there was only a few weeks gap. But how it came about, and I'm going to choose my words carefully, is that we won a big rock and roll competition which led to a record contract because we can never agree if the part of the prize for winning the competition was actually a recording contract. <laughs> I don't think it was. I think it was a little bit of a coincidence that we won this competition and that led to being introduced to some people that 
we we ended up with a record contract. But but anyway, we did. We were introduced to a producer called Ken Jones, who helped us get a deal with Decca Studios. And about a, ten days before the the session, Ken was giving us a bit of a pep talk. Remember, you know, I think Rod and I were eight. At this this time, okay. and Paul Atkinson, guitarist, was a year younger, seventeen, um, and he was giving us a pep talk. And he he said, at one point, he said, "You know, because we were we thought of ourselves as a rhythm and blues band. At one time, that was the band was called the Zombies R and B because we played rhythm mm. and blues. Okay, and we were going to do some rhythm and blues tracks in the studio. But he said, you know, you could always write something for this session. And then he went on and talked about other things. That was it." And I didn't pay any attention to it, but Rod and Chris White did. And they both went away and wrote two, one song each, two really good songs. A few days later, it was three or four days later, Rod came back and played us She's Not There. And Chris played us the song that became the B-side, You Make Me Feel Good. The two really good songs. Yeah. And um, I think we knew, well, both of them were special, but particularly She's Not There, I think we knew was was special and immediately we wanted to record that in the first session we recorded the Gershwin classic which we did it like as a jazz waltz it's very unusual called summertime and we did another song of Rod's called it's all right with me which is just a bit of a a rocker and then we did the two songs that they'd written for the session but I mean the session nearly didn't happen because We'd been booked into the studio at seven o'clock at night because it was it was thought then that to record in the evening and going through the night was more sort of artistically stimulating <laughs> yeah. than to record during the day. Well, I, it, that may be the case. I don't think as you get older that's the case yeah. because we would have been asleep if we were doing it now. But um, so we went in at about seven o'clock. And the, we were introduced, we'd never met him before, this recording engineer, who was a really good engineer and had engineered a lot of six, big hits, big hits. But because we got there at seven o'clock in the evening, unfortunately, he'd been at a wedding all day and he was horrifically drunk. <laughs> not, only, <laughs> not only horrifically drunk, but he was very aggressively drunk as well. So this is our first time in a commercial studio and we're just going through some songs and I put some headphones on some cans on. And this guy, this engineer, is screaming down the, uh, in these headphones with the worst language you can possibly think of. Very, very aggressive. And it makes me laugh because having been in the business for over 60 years, in that first half an hour, I was thinking, with this guy screaming at me, I was thinking, I don't think this music business is for me. <laughs> I've had enough of this. Then we had a bit of luck and he passed out. He passed out cold oh, on the no. floor. And we, we had to carry him out of the studio, one on each arm and one on each leg. We took him up two flights of stairs. We put him in a London black taxi and we made him goodbye. We never saw him again, ever. Unbelievable. And the assistant engineer took over and the assistant engineer was called Gus Dudgeon. And I don't know if you're familiar with Gus's name, but he went on to be one of the most successful producers of all times. No longer with us, but he recorded all of Elton's early albums. Okay. He recorded Bowie, Kiki D. If you just look up Gus Dudgeon, he's responsible for so much wonderful, well, for producing so much wonderful music. He was the assistant engineer that night. And that 
was his first session ever where he was a recording engineer. And it was our first session ever. And as I said, he's no longer with us. But whenever I saw him, he never forgot that, that that was his first session and our first session. And, you know, he went on to be incredibly successful. And it wouldn't have happened if this guy hadn't have gone to a wedding and, and got horrendously drunk. So, I mean, the session nearly didn't happen. Yeah, I'm wow. not sure if, if he'd have gone on like that. I don't know if it would have happened at all. But it did happen. And She's Not There was released a few weeks later. And um, it was on a television show over here, a live television show. It was called Jukebox Jury, where they have four panelists who they judge whether seven or eight songs are going to be a hit or a miss. It's This is a long time ago. It's very static. But one of the panelists was George Harrison. Okay. And of course, finally, well, th we're thinking it's wonderful he's going to listen to our record, but the whole country was watching because it was George Harrison. And he, he said, well done, Zombies. You know, I think this will be a hit. Well, you know, you, we couldn't fail after that. George Harrison says it's going to be a hit. It is a hit. And, and that's, in a way, the story of She's Not There. I do think there was a bit of a reluctance in America because it was quite unusual, She's Not There. A lot of our songs, they're not what other people are recording. We've, yeah. we've never tried to follow trends, ever. And there was resistance in America to, I think, even releasing it. And it came out on a subsidiary of uh, London Records called Parrot Records. I think they released a lot of English artists. And... Um, I don't think the label were over enthusiastic, but over a period of time, it was released in the fall, I think, and by Christmas it was it was number one in Cashbox, and number two or number three in Billboard. We always seem to be a bit lower down in Billboard, but <laughs> we're certainly number one in Cashbox, and um, we actually arrived in America at Christmas 1964 with that record at number one in Cashbox. Um, so it was a great way to be introduced to the American public as having such a huge hit. Yeah, I mean, that kind of was the recipe, right? Of wait till you get something that, that reach climbs up pretty high and then and then and then send the band over to the to the to the States. But um, I, I do agree with you what you said about the sound. Like when you listen to that song, you listen to a lot of your guys earlier stuff. It's it's unique. It's you guys. It's not really, there's not a genre created for it because you came from the R&B side. So you can feel like, you know, the rhythm sections there with the groove and everything, but it's a different, I mean, you got to think about the time that it was in. There was like the, the, the culture of the sixties coming up at that time. So there is a little bit of a psychedelic feel to it as well. And it kind of just like winds its way through some of these songs. But I think that's what I like about it. I love when I can't put a band into a box of a genre. And I think that you guys um, personify that perfectly. Well, I mean, I, I take that as a great compliment, but it does have its drawbacks in that the media like to to put you in a box. Oh, yeah. And, and even I was explained to me in the old days when people made, you know, when there were actual physical records, like singles and things like that. And they had these people called rackers who used to, you know, there would be thousands of records coming into like a wholesale a place that then sent the records off to retail and they got confused if they didn't know what genre to rack your records in and something <laughs> like that can make things really difficult so although i think it was a great advantage for us to have a, a unique sound it did have its downsides as well and also you know uh, uh, radio stations 
tend to play a particular genre of music. And if they're not sure where you fit, then you can lose radio play over that. But we've never really got too involved in that side of things. And it's just an ob observation of, and from what people have told me, because we've all it's been very simple with us. We record the best songs we've got to the best of our ability. We're not trying to sound like anybody else. And that was true in 1964. And it's true with us now. We had the added complication in 1964 that Rod and Chris were finding their feet as songwriters. Mm. Uh, later on, Rod told me he had written one song before that first session, but I don't, I don't think I've ever heard it. And I'm not sure if Chris had ever written before. So they didn't have a back catalogue of songs. They just started writing. And one of the problems that we came up against was that Decca immediately wanted a follow-up. Within six weeks, they wanted a follow-up. Of course. We were touring. We had no time. We were touring. And we just had one song. And we were pressured into putting that song out. None of us thought it was a hit or commercial at all. And we were right, you know. Yes, <laughs> the devil in the deep blue sea because either we put a record out that we are not confident will be successful or we'd probably get dropped by the label. So it's a difficult situation. We So the follow-up in the UK just didn't go anywhere. But in the States, because the records were released a little later in the States, they skipped that and they released Tell or No, which was a big hit. Yeah. And it was a hit in the UK as well. But it just seemed so short-sighted to me. I think all labels did it at the time, but my only experience was with Decca, that they would put such pressure on you to keep recording singles. And it's a sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. The more singles you put out, you know you're going to have a record that isn't going to happen. Yeah. Especially if they're expecting you to tour and promote it at the same time. And I guess they thought in those, in those days that artists only had short careers anyway and no wonder i wonder why they had short careers because they were pressured into keep releasing records and they thought artists only had short careers so they should get the most out of them, the best they can while they're still relevant i mean that's one way to look at it but the other way to look at it is that kind of pressure stifles uh creativity and i mean people artists have to have yeah. Try and nourish careers. Uh, um, why, why not do that? Why not try and help people develop as musicians until they can have a lifetime's career? And you could have a lifetime's music out of this band rather than six months. But that it's not just Decca. All record companies were like that then. All managers were like that. Uh, and all agents. They, that's how they thought. Huh. Very, very short term. Not like a nourishing and, mindset, that kind of thing. They, they didn't believe in that kind of thing. And, and we were surrounded by people who were like that. Absolutely charming, lovely people to talk to. And you know, they just had it in their minds that you would have a very, very short career. Well, it, it, I mean, it's laughable looking back at it, but that's just the way it was then. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I can I could make an argument for both sides, but it definitely, in my opinion, you know, it, now that we have hindsight, it's like, no, you should be nourishing these bands and like giving them what they need because everyone is has a better view of it, both from the musical, creative, artistic standpoint and the financial standpoint, if we nourish this and like make a long career out of it. Because in 10, 15 years, now we can put out a greatest hits album and we can do a live album and we can do all this stuff. And there's just endless opportunity. Of course. And... You know, I have to be careful. I don't mention any names, but the people that were advi advising us, they were so 
short term. And and of course, I'm sure, you know, they were sort of considered at the time to be quite sophisticated businessmen. But with hindsight, they was they was they were amateurs. They did had no idea what they were doing. The people who advised us advised many other big acts as well and they did exactly the same thing to them and of course they lost them anyway whereas they might have had a, a lifetime's commitment to an artist and it, of course it works two ways um they lost they lost artists who went on to have fine careers yeah um it, it just seems so so short-sighted looking back yeah no i completely understand that um all right i really appreciate you taking a step back into the uh, the history of the band for me. I know that there was a great thing, story behind that. She's not there, and I really appreciate you sharing that. But let's come back up to this new album, because you've got some more songs on here, and I want to talk about one in particular. It's the first single. Um, just a reminder to people listening, the album is called Different Game, and it's coming out March 31st, and we're here with Colin Blundstone of The Zombies. Um... Dropped reeling and stupid. first single great name great song and i think okay so i hope that this does i I always get nervous like making these kinds of connections because i just jump what jump happens first in my brain but i put on this track and i just get tinges of steely dan and i'm wondering if that's hopefully a compliment and what you can tell me about this tune well, just to cover that point, yes, it's very much a compliment because in no way would we ever try to copy anybody. But, but that's just the way um, the, the track evolved. Uh, you know, we were all playing live in the studio at the same time. Rod's written the song and then we throw it open to the guys and this is what this is what happened. And I, I think Steely Dan are one of the finest bands ever. So yeah. if in any way this track reminds you of Steely Dan, I take that as a great compliment. Um, the song itself, yeah, it was written by Rod. I think it's a great title, really great title. <laughs> I think at one time he was thinking of calling it um, uh, Drop Reeling and Naked, but I think Stupid is much better. Yeah, and so this is this is what it developed to. And I was talking to him about the lyric, and he just quite simply explained it as when you're in a what you think of uh, a secure relationship and the carpet's pulled from under you, it's a great shock. And it's it's quite hard to take. And how do you feel? Drop reeling and stupid. And that's that's the that's the trigger for the song. I and love that. The- I have absolutely been there, and I didn't realize that that was the root of this, that thought process. Right. And I understand that so perfectly, and this just fulfills the song so much more. I'm sorry, go on. <laughs> Oh, great! I'm really glad because um, some of the songs I I I can't you know Rod wrote as most of the songs and I don't know the story behind some of the songs because Rod he usually plays the cards very close to his chest yeah. and he would always say that the song means to you what it means to you it might mean something completely different to Rod or to me or to you so he 
he tries to make the um the, the lyrics not too personal to him um it's it's for this, the songs for everyone but he did actually tell me that that was the trigger for this particular song so i'm glad you asked me to explain that yeah. one because there's probably on there i can't explain um another thing with rob when he writes a song i'm always very conscious of it's very important to him how a word sings um so sometimes you'll get someone who's perhaps explaining a really complicated story in a song and and there's there's a jarring line in there or a jarring phrase and you think wow i think you could have found a better way to explain that in a song but but Rod is always very conscious of how um, a word sings and i i think he's a great songwriter and you know i've tried to learn from him and uh, when when i write i try and do the same thing i really like it i i love that that's the root of the song and um there will be a snippet played on this for people to listen to it but i encourage you to go i've listened to the album top to bottom it's so good i'm so happy that you guys are still out producing being creative it's i i like it because i'm the kind of person that tries to keep that mindset of you're just never too old to start something new and um and i think that this is a testament to it like you guys could have packed it up and and not keep doing what you're doing but not only are you out there doing what you want to be doing but you're just continuing to create new music and i i I really like that respect it and appreciate it um the last question that i have for you i know you guys are doing a lot of press and i appreciate your time i actually asked my editor um and the the editor of song facts the website carl weiser to submit a question and he asked What's a song by another artist that has had the biggest impact on you? Wow. Well, <laughs> I'll tell you one song that had a big impact on me in many ways. Um, I've always been, you know, I was a huge fan of anything by the Beatles, but I, I, I'm going to choose something else. Um, we were also uh, huge fans and, and still are of the Beach Boys. And we recently toured with Brian Wilson. Amazing. And I was asked to sing God Only Knows on stage with Brian Wilson and his wonderful band. And I can't tell you how exciting, thrilling and intimidating. (laughs) So, you know, God Only Knows is certainly a very special song. And to have sung it with Brian, uh, you know, that's a song I'll, I'll that's a story I'll be telling to my um, to my grandchildren Absolutely. so I've got to ask did you add your own new layer of harmony or did he assign you one of those layers <laughs> I I just sang the melody okay. I sang the melody and I stuck to it very resonantly <laughs> and then the band did all the complicated wonderful stuff around me um, yeah I, I played it very safe Believe me. I have to imagine. I mean, I recently did. I interviewed an author who um, wrote a book, and and he had like fifty songs that were just these amazing songs throughout time, and kind of telling some of the stories behind them. And that song is one of them that I asked about and that we talked about. And it's funny to me that 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 you bring that up and that you played it live because that's a song that I've always imagined Brian Wilson creating in the studio. And then the band, like the kind of the story behind it is that they were out on tour. They came back and he had a lot of these songs written and ready for the band to record. And I imagine that the band came back from tour and was like, 
how do you expect us to do this live? Like, and hit these notes and hit these harmonies so perfectly throughout this. And I just have to, I can't imagine how intimidating that was for you, but kudos. Yeah, thank you. It was, um, it, you know, as I said before, I can't choose other words. It, it was thrilling and just a little bit scary. And the yeah. first time we did, we did it in the Greek theater in uh, Los Angeles. So there's seven and a half thousand people there. It's not, <laughs> it's not a place where you want to go <laughs> and be a bit shaky. You know, you've got to be on it. Uh, yeah. So that was, that was a wonderful experience. Amazing. Um, Colin Blundstone, thank you so much for your time and your music. And I know you guys have some touring coming up. Um, there's some U.S. states and plenty in the U.K. as well. I'm going to have those linked in the show notes for people to check out. I'm hoping that you guys have a great time. What an amazing album. And just thank you so much. Bye. Been a pleasure. Thank you so much to Colin for coming on to the show. Be sure to check out the album on March 31st and check the show notes to see if they have a tour stop near you. And as always, for the stories behind the songs, go to songfacts.com. Thank you so much. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.